0: Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people to hear from your word. We ask that you'd speak to us as we enter this season of Lent. May you help us slow down our lives and listen. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God. Now and forever. Amen. Megan and I have kind of become campers in our marriage time together. Uh, I think both of us had camped a little bit before. Her family had camped a lot. Um, my family, a little. And her, her uh, dad and stepmom are becoming big campers. So what they have managed to accumulate is the nice behind trailer not a fifth wheel but a a pull behind trailer and they love to camp so they're going every weekend once uh, the wind or summer comes they'll maybe skip one week every once in a while but every weekend pretty much the whole summer they're booked to go camping and they're always asking us to camp with them so Megan and I have ventured out to camp with little kids And we did camp once last, or I think actually twice last summer with Abraham when he would have been, at that point, maybe five months old. So we've done it, and we're still young enough to be idealistic enough to sleep in a tent. We don't have a camper or pop-up or anything, but we do use cots now. So we don't sleep on the ground. We've said, okay, we're done sleeping on the ground. Uh, Whenever we were first married, we slept on the ground, but we've got cots and we've got beds for the kids, so we, we're not too close to, to nature. But what's interesting about camping is there's something about it that we like, I think, because it gets us close to the wilderness and to nature, which is something instinctual about us as humans, that we were made to be in nature and in God's creation, and, but there's something also about camping that reminds us about the nature is that it's more like this wilderness. It's a place that we can't control. Even if you have a really nice climate controlled camper, you can't control if there's a lot of mosquitoes outside and it rains the whole week. And you're stuck inside and then your, your uh, roof starts to leak or something. We can't control that. So, wilderness, the wilderness reminds us of our inability to be in control completely. So Megan and I like to camp. Uh, We do like to enter the wilderness. Someday maybe we will be more ambitious and do backpacking and, and hardcore camping. Megan has done that before. I haven't. I've never slept outside under the stars or anything. But someday. But what's interesting is that wilderness is a theme that's also important within... The Bible and our faith, specifically within the Hebrew Bible. And today, as we take a look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, what we're actually going to see is that the wilderness is an important theme within this passage for Luke and for Jesus. And we're going to see that this is a theme that is connected to the Old Testament. So if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, we will look at that together. I do not have a bulletin, I do not know which page in the Pew Bible that is. What page is it? 882? 892. All right. So I encourage you, and I always, and I don't say this enough, but every week I encourage you to to follow along. Because the way that I preach is I preach the text. So we read verses and then I talk about what they mean and I explain them. And then and when it's appropriate, I try to apply them to our lives. So if you don't follow along, it'll be easy to get lost. And I recognize that the Pew Bibles are not what I use. This is NIV. Um, So if you want to follow along with the same translation as me, I use the NIV when I'm up here. So that's what this is. So let's take a look starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. This is how Luke opens this story with us Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It starts with the wilderness. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So since Thanksgiving, we've been in Luke. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can see with me that we have looked at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. We have looked at uh, all of chapter 3. We've looked at some of chapter 2. And then we've also looked at chapter 4, verses 14 through 28. So we've been around this passage, but we've never actually looked at this passage. Now that was strategic, and the passages around this passage are important for us to understand what's happening. So in verse, chapter 3, 21 through 22, Jesus is baptized. So Jesus goes to see John the Baptist, and he decides to enter into baptism and to respond to John's call to be baptized. And when Jesus is baptized, we're told that he is God's son. So this is important. And then what happens right after that is something that we didn't look at. Now, if you were reading this on your own when you got to verses 23 through 38, you probably skip them. So if you don't know what that is, verses 23 through 28 starts this way. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought of Joseph. And then it goes on, the son of Heli, the son of Matta, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, on and on and on. And when we get to those places in our Bibles, we usually skip them, Right? But what's going on here is that Luke has told us that Jesus is the son of God. And then he gives the genealogy of Joseph to show that Jesus deserves to be called the son of God. Because he has the family history. Because Jesus, if you look down here far enough, is the son of Judah... Who is also the son of David. So, David the king. So, Jesus is a descendant of King David through his father Joseph. Now, this is important in the story. And then Luke begins chapter 4. So, when we read chapter 4, it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is important. Because if we're reading the story, all of a sudden the story stops so that we can read about Jesus' ancestry. And now it starts again. And we know that Luke starts right where he left off because Jesus had just been in the region of the Jordan River. And now he leaves the Jordan led by the Spirit. We're learning he just had the Spirit descend upon him. And now the Spirit takes him into the wilderness. So this continues the story immediately after what would just happen. And then the other, there's a couple other important things for us to notice. Forty days he was tempted, and it was in the wilderness. So we've talked about Old Testament echoes before. We talked about him last week. An echo would be an Old Testament story being reflected in the New Testament. We see an echo of the same themes and ideas. Forty days. There's one other time where there's something that has to do with forty in the Old Testament, but it's not forty days. It is. Does anyone know? Forty years, right? Forty years that what Israel wanders in the wilderness because they have not been faithful. This isn't working. I'm going to keep going. Is this, is this on now? Okay. All right. Forty years. So Carrie has told us, 40 years in the wilderness. So now we have 40 years to 40 days. And, again, it's the wilderness. So we see this echo from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Jesus is going to, in some way, relive this story from the history of Israel. And then there's something else that's interesting about this story that we need to talk about. And that's that there's this character called the devil. Now, I don't want to say a lot about this because we could spend way more time than we have to talk about this. But in the New Testament, there's two names used to talk about God's adversary. One of them is, in this case, the devil, which is just the Greek word diablos, which simply means um, someone who is... Not an adversary, but um, I'm trying to think the words run right the tip of my tongue. I do not have notes this week, so everything is going from memory here. <clears throat> it's, it's a word that has to do with um, slander. So either it's about slander or it's someone who does slander. But this word becomes associated with the one who is God's adversary. And this other person gets a name also that we know as Satan, which is Hasatan, which comes to Greek from Hebrew, and that word simply means the adversary. So within the New Testament, this concept starts to develop about this person who is in direct opposition to the mission of God in the world. Now, this, this character is not clear in the Old Testament But by the New Testament, we have a very clear development that there is a character who is fighting against God in the world. That we have come to know as Satan. Now, I don't know where the word Lucifer comes from. I think that's a Latin translation of something in the Old Testament. But don't hold me to that. I didn't look it up. But um, we can't say much about this character other than that that he was created by God. So he is like you and me. He is a creature of God. Now, he's not human, so he's probably some sort of spiritual being. But what's important is Satan, just like you and me, can only know what he learns. And he can only be in one place at one time. So if Satan is somewhere in Africa, he is not in the United States. And this is something that I think we misunderstand. He is not like God. God is in all places at all times, and God knows all things past, present, and future at all times. So it's very likely when Satan meets Jesus, he doesn't really know who Jesus is. He knows there's this guy who is the son of God. He maybe heard the story, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's like you and me. Sometimes we give Satan too much credit, I think. That's not to say that he doesn't work hard to pull us away from the mission of God, but sometimes we give him too much credit. So this is the story that Luke tells us About Jesus' encounter. Starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So the first temptation that Satan gives to Jesus is, Hey, look, Jesus, you've been hungry, I'm sure. Who knows how long he's been fasting? Somewhere within these 40 days is when this happens. So he says, You know what? If you're the Son of God, that means you probably have some sort of powers. Why don't you take these stones here and turn them to bread? Now, <clears throat> we think that, that one of two things is going on here, maybe a little bit of both. The first thing is maybe that within the ancient first century world, magicians would claim to turn things like stones into, into uh, whatever. They could transform things. And that was part of their power. So Satan is appealing to Jesus to use his powers to meet some sort of worldly expectation. And on top of that, I think we have an Old Testament echo. And we see this in Jesus' response. So this is how he responds in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So Jesus knows the story of the Old Testament. He knows that his people were tempted in the wilderness. And he knows that they failed to trust God for their life. They complained numerous times about the food they didn't have and then the food they did have and they wanted different food. They didn't trust God to feed, to provide water for them. And there's at least, I think, two instances where Moses brings water out of nowhere. Because the people of Israel cannot trust God in the wilderness. But Jesus says, I'm not going to make that mistake. I know that life comes from God and that it's his will for me to be here. And I'm going to trust him to provide food for me when it's time. So, Jesus, unlike his ancestors, are a, is able to withstand the temptation of hunger and not trusting God for life. So, the devil tries again, starting in verse 5. This is what he says next. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I will give it to you only if you, only if you want it. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So this second temptation is that Jesus is tempted to worship Satan or idolatry. And he says if you do this I will give you all the nations of the world. A couple important things. One I think it's important for us to recognize that the Satan has been given power or he has taken power over the world's powers meaning governments, nations, and God has let him have that. But it's something that's given to him that he's taken. He's allowed to have. He doesn't deserve or earn that right. So Jesus has a choice. He can either choose to follow the will of God, and God's decision was always to give him authority as king once it was time. So Jesus was always destined to have authority over all the nations. The question was, is he going to listen to Satan, or is he going to follow God's will? Now, to follow Satan requires him to worship Satan Which is something that he knows he should not do. Because this is how he answers in verse 8. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what Jesus is doing is quoting again. The last quote was from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 13. I didn't say that. And now he quotes Deuteronomy again. This time Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. And he says, Unlike my ancestors in the wilderness who worshiped the golden calf, within days of being brought out of Egypt and seeing God's glory on the mountain of Sinai, in hearing God speak to them, you shall have no other gods before me. After that, they still turn to Aaron and say, You know what, Aaron, we want you to make us an image to worship God because we don't know where Moses is and we want to worship our God. But Jesus knows that he should worship God alone. So he resists the devil's temptation. And then now the devil ties one more time, starting in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now, this is what's interesting Satan cloaks to Jesus from Psalm 91, verses 10 and 11. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So Satan's final guess, guess or attempt is to say to Jesus, all right, you think you're the son of God. Let's see if you are. God will rescue you. So he takes him to the top of the highest place in the temple and says, I want you to jump. See if you will be rescued. And then Satan sweetens the pot by saying, Remember, your God promises to you in Psalm 91 that he will rescue his people whenever they are in difficult times. But Jesus knows what his ancestors don't. Or he is faithful, he knows not to test God. He knows that even though God has promised that in Psalm 91, it's not about going and searching for places for God to rescue you. It's about trusting God and realizing his faithfulness in times of difficulty. So he responds this way in verse 12. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. This time, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He's reliving the wilderness wandering of his people, but unlike them, he passes the test. He's able to realize that he cannot test God. Now the Jewish people tested God throughout the wilderness time. They didn't trust God to bring them out of, bring them into the promised land. They didn't trust God to feed them, to provide for them. And because they didn't trust God, they constantly expected him to do things, to remind them of his faithfulness. But Jesus isn't going to do this. He knows to trust God and to not test his faithfulness. So so the devil having tried three times, this is how Luke finishes it. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So having failed to cause Jesus to sin, the devil leaves. So now we are forced to sort of process this passage. What is it all about? Well, remember there's these Old Testament echoes. Jesus is able to... Enter the wilderness like his people and be tested like his people. But unlike his people who failed to live up to the test, Jesus does. So what does this mean about who Jesus is? Because remember, Luke has already told us that Jesus is the son of God and he has the family history. But now Luke shows us right after that Jesus has the ability to live up to being the son of God. And what he's actually doing is, unlike Israel, he is showing us how to truly be human. Jesus shows us how to truly be human. The whole goal of Israel was always to be the people who the nations could look to to see what it looks like to be human. To treat each other with love and care the way that God intended. But Israel fell fell short time and time again. And Jesus comes to be this new Israel. A representative of all of what Israel was meant to be. The ideal human. Jesus shows us what it looks like to truly be human. So we need to look no further than Jesus. So this becomes really practical when we talk about as a church, well, how is it that we grow? How do we attract more people, which is, I don't think a good way to think about it anyway, but how do we connect with people and grow our church? And what it comes down to is we need to be like Jesus. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to truly be human. We need to be treating other people the way that Jesus treated them. We need to be living radically in the way that Jesus calls us to live. And when we do that as a community... We might look a little bit weird to the world. We might look different. We do things that people don't understand. We forgive people when we shouldn't. We're generous when we shouldn't be. We have this sense of joy in the face of desperate times because we know the good news of the gospel and we live like Jesus. Jesus shows us what it looks like to truly be human and that's where Luke is going with this passage he's saying Jesus is the true human who is able to show us how to live the will of God to live the way we are made to be and then he invites us to follow and be a part of that mission so let us pray Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. And we ask that you be with us. May you help us to be people who follow your son Jesus and to live his will in the world. May we be able to Follow him into the wilderness this Lenten season and reflect upon our need for a Savior. And may we come into a greater connection with him. May you show us places we need to be more like Jesus in our lives so that we can be more truly human the way that you've made us to be. We ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.